0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor at large at The Block, and I'm very excited to have Jamie Burke, founder and CEO of Outlier Ventures, joining us on the other side of the mic. It's been a long time coming, sir. Really appreciate you taking the time. We're going to be diving into their open metaverse thesis, including how the idea of the metaverse has changed since the go go days of 2021. Uh, as well as the intersection of Web3 and AI and much more. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Do more with your crypto. Whether you're a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring new Web3 applications with peace of mind, knowing that PayPal has your back. Learn more and get started today at paypal.com crypto. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. So let's let's just start. I mean there's probably tons that we can get into but we can start with metaverse. It seems like it's completely been thrown into the dustbin of 2021 and completely overshadowed by the uh, the the sort of rise of ChatGPT and AI generally. When I say even the word metaverse, I feel like I'm talking about my ex-girlfriend like there's something that you know, there's almost a stigmata there. Um, why should people still care? And my description is 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 that is that overstated? Um, maybe it was just too overhyped in the previous cycle, as it were. Um, and now it's sort of you know come back down to earth. What's your impression?
1: Yeah. Well, some X's you keep going back to, right? You never quite get over them. Um, and I, I think the metaverse might might be one such X in that um, it's been a pr- pretty persistent term. You know, it's been around for a couple of decades now, um, comes in and out of vogue. For us, it, it remains the framing directionally of where we see Web3 going, how Web3 realizes its its full purpose um and that's because you know when we as a vernacular most people generally understand when you say the metaverse that you're talking about the web becoming more immersive they might have different nuances to that but that's a generally commonly understood term which you know has been reinforced by sci-fi and hollywood movies and everything else so so that's pretty helpful um but more importantly for us, the reason why we use the metaverse as a term is because um, it's not just about a more immersive web, it's about thinking about what that economy looks like. Um, and we believe Web3 is foundational to making sure that that, that thing isn't based upon siloed platforms and just kind of a deepening or entrenchment of, uh, of Web2 web two business models but is kind of participatory um and if we can extend all of these primitives that we've got with DeFi um into the universe of fungible non-fungible use cases then there is this promise that um web three can have real impact from a financial inclusion perspective um, so there's a lot of things that are digital at the moment that are not formally recognized as wealth um, by the existing financial system. You know, the, the go-to example is you're a gamer, you got in, in-game in items, you can't go to a bank and get a, get a short-term loan against that. But with DeFi, as you well know, you know, as long as there's another person on the planet that thinks the thing that you've got is a value, then you, you could take out a loan. And so... We call that MetaFi, but the kind of principle of the framing of um, the metaverse, in particular the open metaverse, for us holds. But you're right. Like with everything, um, things get hyped; they get overhyped, um, and then people like the mainstream move on, and then there's anything. And um, and so I think it is fair to say that mainstream's moved on and and for now and perhaps thinks of it as this COVID thing, this kind of post-COVID thing. Um, and the new shiny thing is AI. And that is true. Um, however, we did argue back when we published the Open Metaverse OS paper first week of 2021. Um, and more recently continue to argue that um, actually AI is a critical part of web3 actually going back to 2018 we wrote our first kind of thesis paper called the convergence thesis which was looking at how web3 blockchains and AI converge and we're starting to see that happen now we made several investments back then that are starting to kind of play out so it's it's great to see uh, that that happen, that reality happen, and and um, that being the zeitgeist. But I think the more time you spend thinking about AI and its future, um, the more you'll come to realize that it needs something web three like to scale beyond what it is today. Um, and we can get into why that is.
0: Maybe a little bit later. We can definitely get into that, um, but. But before we, we touch on the intersection of crypto and AI, let's let's just explore maybe how your thesis for the open metaverse has changed since you first published that thesis back in the first week of 2021.
1: Yeah, so the first thesis where we articulated it as the, the open metaverse um, was very much as we were about to kind of see a year of hype around NFTs kind of really kick in and and, and go mainstream. Um, And just before a load of brands would start piling in mainly fashion and, you know, media entertainment, pre Facebook repositioning as meta. And so I would say at that point, it was much more kind of optimistic in tone and outlook. A lot of the use cases that we referenced um, that were giving clues to the direction of the open metaverse, things like Axie Infinity and, and various other things, um, obviously have struggled. You know, the kind of economics worked in a bull market. The token economics worked in a bull market and, and they, you know, Nick collapsed um, in, a, in a bear market um and so you know naturally there's a lot of learnings there there's a lot of learning for us as an industry um but actually you know when we use a lot of those reference points it wasn't necessarily that we were saying this particular thing is is going to be you know a continued success it was more like this is how an innovation is being used this the direction is some interesting things there so i'm and i'm broadly happy with that i think the surprising thing, two, reflecting two years on now, so we just published our sequel to that, which is called The Open Metaverse Under Attack, The Fight Back. As the title would uh, indicate, you know we believe that there are a number of events that have occurred over the last couple of years, um, which are undermining the, the potential for for the open metaverse. So some of those are kind of organic. Um, and some of those are very much the existing system, um, especially in a regulatory sense, um, looking to limit, coerce, control. Um, so maybe start on, on the first set, which are kind of more emergent. Um so you know, ultimately, like what we frame as the open Metaverse um, and, you know driving that as the operating system as Web3, that is really defined, like its future, its present and future is defined by millions of decisions by founders, like every day, making decisions that in aggregate start to kind of um, define. What, what the metaverse is and isn't. Um, and so on the one hand, it's great. Now we've got, as I mentioned at the top end, lots, an increasing amount of founders crossing over into Web3, some from big tech, some serial founders, you know, generally speaking, um, and some entirely first time founders. And, you know, they are just trying to build startups that succeed. Like that that can raise some money, find product market fit, scale the product hopefully to, you know, 10,000, 100,000 million um, plus users. And they might not necessarily be as dogmatic about Web3, um, you know, making sure that all of these kind of characteristics that you or I or your audience might think are fundamental to Web3. Um, you know, for them, they just want to ship a product and they, they generally understand that if they're going to do that and this product's going to survive for a decade, it should probably have some web three characteristics. Otherwise it's, it's kind of, it's still born in a way it might have like a momentary success, but it's most likely going to be disrupted. Um, and so they're pragmatists and on the one hand, that's great, right? We've finally got pragmatists coming to web three who are building things that people can actually use. Um, and a very product oriented very customer oriented um, however those trade-offs in aggregate start to create what you could call people are calling like a web 2.5 so it's like web 3 but not quite um, and you know this is everything from a increased focus on leveraging you know layer twos roll-ups um, this kind of stated aim of app chains or building super apps, these kind of self-contained uh, applications um, that don't have to kind of compromise on UX or anything else. And and that's great in a way. You know, it, it's onboarding actual users into Web3. The challenge is that it, it creates, it's not quite yet Web3. And the concern is, is that Web 2.5 could be permanent, not transitory. Um, and very quickly, this Web 2.5 and its business models um, kind of solidify and, and there's little incentive for founders to kind of really continue that drive towards like full, full fat Coke um, Web 3. So, and, and you see this, everywhere actually you know it it's in things like mev um and you know how that impacts um networks like ethereum um it's it's uh as i said you know kind of how people are leveraging roll-ups which make create silos right so you could create a brilliant web3 game with an app chain construct stack but that Wouldn't then be very easily interoperable with DeFi, which means that, yeah, you've got digital property rights, but you can't actually leverage all this brilliant DeFi stuff to translate that into wealth. So it kind of creates like a halfway house. Um, So that's kind of the first thing. Um, The second thing is that there is a increased push by regulators I'll speak generally but the US obviously is kind of the the more aggressive.
0: Well you mentioned this in the report where there's these there's this indirect state capture of centralized platforms through compliance with an example being Tornado Cash. How do you see this impacting the development the development of an open metaverse? And how do you how do you propose these threats from governments be mitigated?
1: So, naturally, I don't think it's a surprise, to be honest with you, but, you know, naturally, governments that are more oriented towards big state um, have a tendency to control. Now, I'm not a hardcore libertarian, like, by any means, but it's just a fact. Um, and, you know, you, you can put a partisan flavor on it. I actually think it's more, more generalized. Um, and... The reality is that most governments now wanting to push CBDCs and so stable coins is a great example. Um, I was surprised even to learn the extent to which most stable coins today can be censored through court injunction and order. So, you know, the, the, the kind of top three um, through court order can freeze transactions they can, re- some of them can reverse transactions. Like this is like a fundamental part of web three in the open metaverse. And yet it is already state captured. Um, when you look at how that's being extended, your algorithmic stable coins for, with some recent legislation coming out of Europe will be outright banned. You're looking at um, smart contract code. Tornado cash is one example. Being prohibited and being removed through court order from things like GitHub. So that's a censorship of code, which is, you know, there's a couple of decades of people fighting for um, code is freedom of speech in the sense of cryptography in the 90s. I think that's going to come back again now, especially in the US context. Um, even with things like MEV. Um, you're seeing the ability for more centralized um, actors to be coerced. Um, you know, So the more centralization we see in say, this web 2.5 environment, the more centralized entities, the more centralized networks are, the more centralized the entities that operate them and therefore the more uh, censorship prone they are or the more prone they are to state capture. So. These things kind of um, they kind of interplay in a way. You know, we're even seeing noises again out of the U.S., which are saying that just network participation in Ethereum um, would require KYC and AML. You want to you want to uh, participate in proof of stake? You need to be KYC and AML. Um, so there is a increased tendency to, towards centralization generally in web 3 with like very clear first second order effects um, and then kind of finally on, on on that piece because not relatively less capital is being invested into the industry at the moment um, and you know more teams are running out of money there's going to be more and more &A. Um, more and more market consolidation Um, as founders run out of options. And so we're already seeing that in in a number of areas. Um, And because equity became back in vogue over the last 24 months as the retail investor disappeared and it's now professional investors, there are many startups that um, are being the equity entities being acquired before they ever achieved a reasonable level of decentralization. And so maybe they never will. You know, you look at Nike and Artifact. Would have Artifact ever had a token? Might have they been more decentralized if they weren't acquired? I don't know. But all these things kind of point towards a a more centralized, uh, less resistant, uh, more easily censored, more easily state-captured open metaverse.
0: Is there any way around that? I mean, is there anything... Is it, is, it, is it a question of capital? Is there just not enough capital so people have to capitulate um, in terms of the degree of censorship that exists there?
1: We're not sure. We might have to accept just like, you know, you have Apple and Android or, you know, other analogous things open and closed. Maybe these things will kind of exist in parallel perpetually. Um However, I think, and you're actually starting to already see this again in the US because I think that's perhaps the more explicit battlefront Biden obviously recently um, directly referencing crypto uh, for the first time um, in uh, this kind of standoff right now relating to the budget. Um, It's now firmly on the political agenda. Um, And I think that as I alluded to earlier, the more we can enshrine principles of Web3 into existing rights, human rights, um, either in the U.S. Constitution and/or United Nations and/or um, you know European human rights, I think there are certain principles that are already clearly linked, right? You know, digital property, like property rights. Well, digital property rights is just an extension of that, right? Should we be pushing for the idea that everybody should have digital property rights? We can, We should be able to exit a platform in the way that, I don't know in the US, but in the UK, there's been a big push by the government to allow, it's called switching between retail banks, you know, to kind of find better rates. It was for, mandated to banks that they had to make it as easy as possible for a user to be able to switch banks. Um, the same should be true in in uh, platforms. Um you know, this idea and linked to that is kind of sovereignty of identity and data. But freedom of speech, you know, we've experienced this with cryptography. It was how cryptography defended itself its commercialization from originally military grade hardware, which is that it's freedom of speech. Um, So that's how it kind of combated export controls. Um, So we've already been here before in in defending code as, as freedom of speech. So I think that As an industry, there are several things we can do to educate, you know, policymakers and directly link the things that we currently currently articulating as Web3 features, characteristics as actually, you know, universal rights for people on the Web um, directly linked to existing law. And if we can do that, I think it's going to be much easier to defend it. Um, And so I think that's kind of, that's my recommendation for us as an industry is how we better frame what we're trying to achieve uh, in a political context.
0: Attention crypto holders, moving crypto is seamless and secure with PayPal. With support for Bitcoin, ETH and more, you can buy, sell, hold, send, and check out with crypto at millions of shops online. Not to mention, PayPal now supports the ability to send to and from external wallets and charges you nothing when transferring between PayPal and Venmo crypto wallets. Whether you're exploring the world of Web3 or huddling on for another day, PayPal is the convenient and simple way to convert dollars into crypto. PayPal has your back. They work to protect your financial info and give you confidence every step of your crypto journey. Now's the time to make your crypto move. Get started today at paypal.com crypto terms and conditions apply. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low-carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.plainspark.com to learn more. I guess shifting gears just a little bit, I know you guys are investors in Lens Protocol. Can you explain or walk us through your sort of general thesis behind that and Web3 social in general and how do the two sort of you know how are the two connected right open metaverse and Web3 social are they can they almost be the same or are they just interconnected
1: yeah so we're not actually invested in lens but we do reference it in the paper so you're 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 right to you're right to flag it and we use it as one example of a reimagining of uh, the social graph in the context of the open metaverse. Because you're right. Like, if we're going to talk about the sovereignty of the user, identity, data, like, really, we're talking about the social graph. The difference is that in an open metaverse context, you have your social graph, but you then also have this um, kind of financial identity. Um, and you know this is why i think meta were very keen to try to make something like instagram and nfts work is they've already got your social graph you know um if you're a certain age and they want to connect it with your financial um identity because then that's the holy grail for for advertising right? a wallet to a to to a user account um however in a web 2 context or a web 2.5 context that's that's quite dystopic, um, especially if you take it to its nth degree, which is you're in a hostile environment, you know, China, um, in terms of user rights, where they want to um, limit your ability to participate socially and economically if you're out of favor. Now, um, what is, like, reimagining what is social media um in a Web3 sense, is a really interesting one. And I actually don't think we've quite landed on it yet for a number of reasons. The first one being because we haven't solved decentralized identity yet. There are solutions, but none of them are used at scale. Most people's identity in Web3 is still their wallet, um, and, and it's still public by default.
0: What's missing there? Just the fact that it's public by default?
1: So one is public by default, and I think zero knowledge technology solve for this to a degree. Um, but also, look, there's been you know over a decade in of work by the World Web F- Foundation and various public-private, uh, public-private hybrid entities on forms of decentralized identity, primarily what are called DIDs, uh, decentralized identifiers, and verifiable credentials, VCs. Um, and, and yet they've never really taken off, and, and those innovations conceptually allow you to prove who you are without revealing the underlying data. Um, now, the challenge has been that most of the time these have been thought of as public goods, right? You're going to create a protocol in a way that SMTP is a protocol. Um, people will use it, it will become a universal standard, and, and everything's solved, and that hasn't happened I believe the reason why that's not happened is because there's not been a financial incentive behind it, not just for people, but for businesses to adopt it like a clear economic system that would incentivize um, identifiers, verifiers of identity to, to participate in that system. And actually... There's a really strong, if you can get these incentives working, and obviously I would propose that's through tokenization, um, then you can allow for entities that verify somebody's identity or something is true about a person. That could be, let's call it KYC and AML, right? You know, you are who you say you are and your money's come from where you say it's come from in a wallet. Um, Banks do this all the time, Uh, your telco does it all the time, your utility company does it all the time, Uh, and banks even do it multiple times sometimes. You know, you're a retail customer and then you're a bank customer, or you're like constantly identifying yourself with a bank. That comes at a cost to the bank. Um, So there's a real incentive for them to not have to do that all the time, because they can dramatically reduce the cost of identifying you. But if they can do that in a way where that proof is then Reusable, then they can not only offset the cost of having to identify them themselves, but they can turn it into a revenue line by effectively creating a secondary market for for verifying things about people, and that's utility companies, telco, you know, um, whatever else, bank. So there's this huge economic reason for a load of people to solve it. It's just that the current attempts have either been you know, pure play public good protocols or privately owned platform proprietary solutions, and neither quite quite do it. So, it's our belief that a form of DID and VC will begin to interplay with things like soulbound tokens. You know, on-chain non-transferable att- attestations. It will converge with things like NFTs, forms of NFTs, which I've always seen as social media without the platform. You know, you're kind of expressing belonging. You know, you're expressing participation in community, provenance, status, um, with some kind of off-chain attestations through zero-knowledge technology. So... It hasn't happened yet, but I think all these technologies are converging to the point whereby it's totally plausible to say in the next 12 months even that a form of identity solution or maybe a stack of protocols will solve for this. And when they solve for that, then then finally we've got something that could enable um, a decentralized form of identity and 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 off the back of that i think you'll end up with some uh, a new form of social media
0: now we can go back to ai how does how does that fit in
1: i mean there's this whole meme at the moment that um every web3 investor is now an ai investor and you know to be honest with you if they weren't uh, they're probably not doing their job but um but ai has always been integral to our vision for Web3, as I said earlier, as early as
0: 2018. How does it impact our, like, online experience?
1: Well, so in, in a number of ways. So um, so in some ways, Web3 extends what AI is today. It makes new things possible. It makes it more transformative and disruptive for certain industries, like the creative industries, and I'll come back to that. Um, and then in other ways, it solves for problems that ai will create so maybe we start there like i think it's probably obvious to everybody by now that if you didn't think you could trust things on the web a year ago like you really can't trust things on the web now like it's almost a get out of jail free card if you do something really bad you're just like ah it was ai you know and like it's almost impossible to kind of prove otherwise so um So that's like there's a real trust problem, and clearly Web three is supposedly at least you know a trust machine, and so I think it's fairly intuitive. Web three can solve for the trust issues that AI is going to create, right? Um, I think perhaps what what requires a little bit more imagination is the how Web three can actually extend AI from what it is today. So if you look at what AI is today or at least like what people what most people experience as AI it's these large language models right so chat GPT or, or whatever else I can now through natural language prompt instruct have a conversation with an AI and it can give me something back it can it can just be written text it can be visual response like whatever um and that's really cool, um, but it's it's still quite limited in that, um, like, clearly, most people, you know, um, uh, who is it who came out with it today? Um, I had total memory blank. <laughs> Bill Gates. Bill Gates is like, search is dead. You know, search is going to be dead in, in a year, and I totally subscribe to that, right? If you've begun having these conversational things with a chat GPT, like, you don't need to Google anymore, you know, if, assuming they get better. You just have a conversation and, and it it gives you what you need. Um, but the problem is, is that if it just ends there, it's fairly limiting, right? I have a conversation with something it gives me a bit of advice, but it doesn't like complete the action, right? So, hey, you know, chat GPT, uh, I'm planning a trip, family holiday to Japan in six months. What should I do? when are you going? I'm going in the summer. Blah, blah, blah. I've got this itinerary. But it doesn't book that itinerary for me. You know, like It can't actually carry out economic work. It can't transact. It actually doesn't have agency. And so the agency problem is a limiting factor to AI today. Um, and so the solution is, I believe, and it's increasingly um, even, you know, some of the the senior people at OpenAI are talking about is agent-based systems. So you go from a conversational AI to something that has agency, and you do that through agent-based systems. The reason why you do that through agent-based systems is, um, you need specialists, right? So for for me to have one AI that can do everything, know everything and act on everything, it would have to be generalized intelligence. And and unlike, I don't think anybody's saying we're even close to that, right? Um, That would be like one AI that knows everything about anything and everything and can give you the best possible solution. Um, That's really, really hard to do, primarily because most AI today has been uh, trained on open web data. And what it really needs is like lots of hyper-specialized data. And there's currently no incentive for anybody to, to, to give open AI access to that as a proprietary tech company. Come back to that in a little bit. That's incentives. But the idea is it needs agency. And to do that, you need lots of... You need billions, trillions of specialist agents that are just really, really good at a particular narrow task that you outsource work to. So I have my general AI and I'm chatting to it. And then it goes and subcontracts that work to a specialist or a marketplace of agents. They all bid on the job. One gets it. Goes and fulfills that thing for me. And because there's trillions of specialist agents. It feels like generalized AI. It feels like I've asked one one AI to do something, and it could be anything, and it comes back and delivers a result. But in reality, it's trillions of different, very narrow specialist AIs. Now, that's the only way we're going to get close to generalized AI, and no one platform is ever going to be able to build that, right? You need lots and lots and lots of People, companies to participate in that creating these specialist AI Um, they need to be able to carry out billions trillions of microtransactions between one another like seamlessly Um, so they need agency they need uh, uncoordinated bottom up markets and they need economic agency and so from where I'm sitting the only kind of infrastructure that could enable that is web 3 infrastructure so that is how we get to generalized AI, and that's how we get to AI with agency. But some other cool ways that it, it can extend the potential of AI, um, if we kind of focus on the creative industries, for example. So um, you've probably seen this already, right? Somebody will take a... they'll. So we did a podcast recently with a, kind of an AI version of Sam Altman. So I wanted to speak to Sam Altman, couldn't get hold of him. So I thought, you know, what? I'm just gonna ask ChatGPT what I would ask Sam and ask for it to reply as if it was Sam, in the tone of Sam. And so it kind of gave me this script. It's pretty good actually. Um, I took my, Well, my team took that script and they put it into something that could talk like Sam Altman. And then we put it into another AI that could look like Sam Altman talking to that script. So we basically stacked three or four different AI tools, all open source, and it delivered a piece of media. So so it was composable in a way. AI is kind of composable in a way now. So it's it's not just what you can do with ChatGPT, it's how you can combine all these different AI tools. Now, again, when we think of Web3, what do we think of composability, right? What is DeFi? It's composable. You can have all these little building blocks, you can combine them and you can have Um, a superior app uh, based solution and so again if you're looking at the direction of travel for AI it is composability we call it uh, creative composability Um, and we believe web3 again is going to provide that infrastructure so imagine a world so you go to Netflix now everybody knows like you just can't find new stuff right it's there's just not enough supply of content to meet demand of streaming um and that's obvious to anybody and the reason why is because the production process for media now is still industrial right takes three to four years to create a hollywood movie trip uh, you know blockbuster hollywood movie
0: have you seen some of these like videos that that the ai has come up with they're like what was the most recent one? it was like the great catsby
1: i mean it's, it's it's endless right you know the the kind of possibility of what we're seeing and it and it really brings it to life for the average person but the thing is it still hasn't changed mass media um because it's still being produced in this mass industrial process so like one of the ideas is well what if given most movies are being made in gaming engines now, like the difference between a game and a movie is, you know, negligible. Um, What if every element in a scene, every fragment of a scene was a kind of NFT? And if you produced that scene, you know, you'd have various objects, you'd have various characters, I mean, every element. And what if that was then made available in a universal library? and any, anybody creating a new piece of media, game, movie, whatever, could just borrow all these bits, recombine them in a new way, and all the royalties were kind of taken care of at the point of use. All of a sudden, you would dramatically reduce down the time to produce a movie or a game. Now, the really cool thing is, I did an interview with a game developer recently, and he's created this 2D point-and-click game entirely through AI. And this is somebody who's twenty-five years in game development, like, you know, at a very, very high level. I'm like, well, what do you need, to, like, what do you need a person to do to create games beyond yourself anymore? Says, I like, don't. I can make a game completely through generative AI tools. The only reason why he interestingly collabed with one person in creating that game was because he wanted the experience of making a game to be shared with somebody. But he's still having to. Uh, use assets from a very limited library of assets. People do share uh, items to be reused by developers, but there's no real incentive to do it. It's kind of quite rudimentary. Um, And so our vision for composable creativity is um, if every asset can be reused, recombined, and fed into AI to train it, um, or just to be reused by it in a particular scene, we can have AI creating content f- within days that would be an equivalent to a blockbuster movie, um, and it can even create multiple derivatives. Like you know, I know I want a Bollywood version of Top Gun, go, and it can just do that. Right. That's where we're heading is in, in our perspective.
0: Yeah, that's just that could be a whole a whole show talking about the implications of of AI on Hollywood. Um. Yeah, I mean, like, we, our, our minds, our, just our minds can be our own Hollywood studio. I want this, I wanted the movie to end this way, and then just boom. Well, Person
1: as Prompt is really cool. So if you take it to its extreme, I believe that it would be the end of mass media, right? So I'm a prompt, like the minute I'm comfortable sharing with a streaming platform all my personal peccadillos, right you know or whatever it is because i trust it because i have this decentralized identity i control and it's re- revealing it's allowing the ai model to respond to my personal data without revealing it without handing it over to the platform then effectively every bit of media can be generated to me as a prompt so it'll all be personalized. You'll see your cat. If it's got a cat in the movie, it's going to be your cat. You know, if it's, I don't know, a horror movie, the thing that's kind of coming up behind you is your worst fear. Um, And again, I think this is going to happen a lot sooner than we think.
0: We shall see. Well, sir, thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with us today. Um, Where can people find you and maybe check out, some of your writings
1: yeah so thanks for having me on good to chat um so i'm on twitter mainly um having verbal diarrhea a lot of the time i kind of just think think out loud so i like invite people to pull apart my my thinking um it definitely helps me um, and then if you're a founder that is working in any of the things that I just mentioned, from zero-knowledge technologies to composable creativity to uh, app chains and uh, interoperability or you know whatever, um, get in touch, apply to Accelerator, outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We're always recruiting, We're going to accelerate up to 200 startups this year um, across all of that. Um, but maybe just go read the updated thesis it it really is meant to be a framework for founders to make decisions with because every decision is imperfect every decision has a trade-off honestly there's no right and wrong here but like the 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 aggregate decisions of founders is well, what determines the future of the open metaverse not what i say or you know even what any politician thinks so um so definitely kind of check that out on our website outlierventures.io And, um,
0: yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome
1: day.